Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Third Thursday webinar. I'm Dave Iverson, the contributing editor at the Michael J. Fox Foundation and the moderator for today's webinar and this series of, of Third Thursday webinars. As you know, throughout the year, we take up a different topic each month uh, that has to do with Parkinson's research and living with Parkinson's disease. And so this is something we've done for a number of years now, which is to end the year by doing a year in review, looking at the latest developments in Parkinson's research that have occurred throughout, in this case, 2017, and talking about their significance, both for the patient community, but for scientific inquiry as well. Um, as always, you'll be able to submit your questions throughout the hour. You'll see that little Q&A box in the middle of the screen. So just type in your questions there, and we'll do our best to, to get to them over the course of the hour, taking most of the questions towards the end of our, our webinar today in the last 15, 20 minutes or so. But we'll sprinkle them in throughout the hour, so do be sending them uh, to us. Um, also, you'll be able to download uh, the, the slides from today's webinars in the, re the uh, resource list box you see on the screen. You can click on the link there, and then that will open up in a new window, and you'll be able to save it or, or print it um, from there. All right, let's, uh, let's take a look at what we're going to be uh, focusing on in our, in our webinar uh, today. Um, we're going to talk about um, the number of therapies that are now in clinical trials that may slow or stop Parkinson's disease. This is a, a huge real shift in, in the way in which research has advanced in recent years. So we're going to talk about where we are with the therapies that we hope may eventually prove to, to slow or stop the disease. Um, then we'll move on and, and talk about medications that are um, either have been approved or are close to being approved that will do hopefully a better job of managing particular uh, Parkinson's uh, symptoms. Then we're going to kind of widen things out a little bit and talk about where we are as far as what we've learned about, about Parkinson's disease overall. Are we getting closer to sort of being able to put this, this puzzle uh, together? And then we'll also talk some about uh, new developments and innovations in deep brain uh, stimulation surgery in particular. Okay, here's who's going to be joining us uh, throughout our hour today. Doug DeMond joins us. Doug is the former managing director of ING Clarion Real Estate. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's four years ago in 2013 and has been very active in the Parkinson's disease uh, a broader community, uh, first with the Parkinson's Action Network and is now a member of the uh, Public Policy uh, Council for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Doug, thanks so much for being part of our, our conversation today. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. Joining us as well is Dr. Andrew Sidoroff. Uh, Dr. Sidoroff is the uh, director of the Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorder Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Andrew Sidoroff, welcome. Uh, thanks, Dave. Again, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. And Todd Scherer joins us. Dr. Scherer is the CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation and brings to that position a long career in, in research as well as leadership in the foundation. Todd, always a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. I look forward to the discussion today. All right. Let's dig right in. Um, and we're putting up this first slide now on the screen, which has to do with the therapies that we hope may slow or stop Parkinson's disease that are now in clinical trial, either in phase one, two, or three. We'll talk a little bit about what those, those distinctions mean. 
Um, and we see up on the screen everything from strategies to stop the buildup of alpha-synuclein, the sticky protein that goes wrong in, in Parkinson's or, or causes problems in Parkinson's, and a variety of other strategies, both genetic uh, opportunities as well as some drugs that have also have been approved for other things, but we think may also play a role perhaps in, in halting Parkinson's. And Todd, before we dig into this, I just what I'm struck by when I when I see this screen is if you add up all the numbers there, the four at the top means there are four uh, particular trials having to do with one approach to stopping alpha-synuclein, two others that might approach alpha-synuclein, and so forth and so on. You total them up, and there are 12 uh, therapies that are now in clinical trial, and it's it's striking to me. You and I have done these conversations at the end of the year for number of years now, and this wouldn't have been the case if we had put up a slide like this a, a half a dozen years ago. So just to start us out, Todd, give us your sense of kind of what that indicates in terms of what's changing in the field of research. Yeah, so I think that the um, diversity and breadth of this pipeline certainly uh, reflects uh, a great momentum that we're seeing in Parkinson's disease research. and in the drug development pipeline. And, and what's particularly exciting here is um, the buildup of a lot of basic research and knowledge of what might be causing Parkinson's, what might be causing the progression of Parkinson's, and now seeing the translation of some of that knowledge into potential new therapies. So it's exciting about a number of these um, approaches that are now being explored in the clinic is that uh, they really are targeting the underlying pathophysiology, pathobiology of what might be responsible for Parkinson's. So the idea of really trying to get at that underlying biological process that's leading to the disease and impacting the progression and intervening in that process I think is extremely exciting. I think one of the other things that's important to note and, and to be encouraged by is the diversity of scientific hypotheses that are being explored. So we certainly are not in a, in a situation where all our eggs in one, are in one basket um, and we have multiple hypotheses being moved forward in parallel, um, which of course just gives us a greater chance of success in the, in the end um, from one or multiple of these approaches. And as we look at um, uh, the diversity here, I think part of what I hear you saying, Todd, is that this is also testimony to the way in which basic research, so-called kind of bench research in the laboratory, now has evolved to the point where it's translated into something that actually uh, might play a role in, in halting disease progression. And, and just to ask you, Todd, if you would, to clarify this terminology, because sometimes we talk about disease modification versus symptomatic treatment, and it can get a little confusing sometimes about what that distinction actually is. But as I understand what you're saying, you're really talking about really getting to the basics of how the disease works and somehow interfering with that or stopping that so that it doesn't advance in, in such a way and, and therefore gets at really the root cause of the disease or the root way in which the disease moves forward. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct, and I think just to kind of add a little bit more to that, um, it's not only sort of basic science; it's really the basic understanding of what might be happening in the in the disease. Some of that research does, in fact, come from studies of people with Parkinson's to understand genetic factors, other changes that might be happening in people with Parkinson's. Taking those observations then back into the laboratory to understand 
more of the scientific mechanisms, the cell biology, the biochemistry, and now that's being converted into these potential therapies. And I do think you're right. Sometimes we um, in the scientific community get over um, overly concerned with defining, is this a disease-modifying approach? Is it a symptomatic approach? All of these approaches have the goal of improving the symptoms and, tra and trajectory of Parkinson's. Some of that depends on the timeline, how quickly you see that effect in someone with Parkinson's. In this case, what we're really talking about is the the target, the science, the biology that these um, therapies are going after. And to just reiterate what you pointed out is that in the case of the, the projects on this slide, these therapies are really trying to go and address underlying biology, underlying biological changes that are impacting the disease, rather than simply replacing the dopamine, for example, that's lost as a consequence of the disease. Exactly. Um, and Andrew Sidoroff, let's begin walking our way through some of these. And if you could just talk us through a little bit generally about where we are with halting uh, the the progress of, of the alpha-synuclein that clumps up in the brain and we think causes damage. We see six different trials now that are going on in that area. That's in, a, in and of itself encouraging. I know you've worked on, on some of these without necessarily taking us too deep into the science. Can you just sketch out for us what it is that these approaches share and what their overall goal may be? Oh, sure, Dave. So, I think probably everybody in the audience um, knows, but just in case, uh, alpha-synuclein is the, the bad protein in Parkinson's disease. And a lot of the scientific inquiry recently has focused on the idea that when alpha-synuclein, which has a normal function in brain cells, um, but in, under, under disease conditions, it can clump up and form aggregates. And the, what these, and these aggregates uh, collect inside of uh, dopaminergic neurons in particular and lead to cell dysfunction and ultimately cell death. So aggregation of alpha-synuclein is probably at the core of what uh, causes Parkinson's disease. And so it's not surprising that the majority of the treatments we see on this list are designed at attacking alpha-synuclein in one way or another. And just as a couple of examples, the Aphiris project uh, that you see at the, on the top is a, actually a vaccine which tricks your own body's immune system into removing alpha-synuclein. Uh, and, uh, and then the uh, Biogen and Roche projects you see down below are also uh, treatments that use the uh, immune system more or less. They're um, infusions of alpha-synuclein antibodies, which will allow the immune system, again, to remove excess alpha-synuclein from your body. And some of the other treatments you see on that list are uh, reduced alpha-synuclein aggregation. So the, the general concept here is that uh, accumulation and aggregation into, into clumps of alpha-synuclein is really at the core of what causes Parkinson's. And if you could remove it or cause it to stop clumping up, then you could reverse the progression of the disease. And so that's what these alpha-synuclein uh, therapies are aimed at. Um, and of course, from the patient's point of view, 
Yeah, go ahead. Well, let me just let me ask you just follow up on, on that part, Andrew, and, and that is, I think, from the patient community, of course, and the family community, we're all eager to know sort of, well, when will we know something? And and these have gone through the, the preliminary phase one and into phase two. So we know so far that they're safe, right? We know that, that these are things that, that we don't think are going to be problematic from a safety standpoint. How much, how can you just kind of sketch us out what it is we still need to know and when we might know that as far as whether or not some of these approaches might actually work? Yeah. So, uh, the, I mean, we'd all like to have this information, you know, next next month, the month after. Unfortunately, it is going to take longer than that. Uh, and just for example, the um, Biogen and Roche trials, which are the furthest along, are um, – really going to probably not read out until 2019. So um, so we're going to have to wait a while. And these are also, these are phase two trials, and probably the phase, you know, the, the definitive studies are going to even be later than that, although they'll probably be accelerated to some extent if the phase two studies look promising. But if we're still, you know, a year, two years at least away from seeing these drugs in the clinic. I think we'll get some preliminary evidence about whether this is a fruitful avenue of therapeutics um, probably you know, the very end of next year. Well, that in itself is, is encouraging. I mean, I... I yeah, yeah. And, but there's and, definitely and, a, a lag between the results showing up in a scientific journal leading to you know, a sense that something's going to work and the FDA really being confident that it's okay to let a company market a drug, obviously. Right. I, I think, and in, in, as you say, we're all eager for that day. Uh, on the other hand, it's, it's uh, just interesting that we can foresee when that day might happen, as opposed to it just being some imaginary uh, outcome that, that uh, is not uh, advancing in the way that these are. Um, we'll come back and take more of the, if people have particular questions about this, because this is so central, as Andrew Sidoroff was, was commenting. But let's, let's keep moving forward. And, and Todd, let me hand it back to you to just describe um, briefly what's going on with the next two, which are both having to do with genetic mutations, which can lead to uh, Parkinson's uh, disease. And this is quite new, that we, that we actually now are, are testing something that might provide some sort of fix uh, for those particular mutations. Describe where we are with those. Yeah, this is a very interesting new um, direction for, for Parkinson's, and I think one that um, is a culmination of a, a number of years of, of research. Um, we've known for many years that many there's great variability in the cases of Parkinson's disease, meaning that some people might have younger onset Parkinson's compared to others. Some people have a different symptomology than others. Um, and there's quite a lot of variability, um, as we know, in terms of the clinical symptoms, clinical progression uh, that people can can have in the disease. Um, and we we really haven't known much about what could be some of the um, scientific or biological underpinnings of that variability. Um, and what you know what's been uncovered over the last um, uh, decade or so are some of these genetic factors, including alpha-synuclein, but in this case we're list listing GBA and LERC2, where we've uncovered that mutations in these genes can increase the risk of, of getting Parkinson's disease. Um, in the broad population, these um, mutations are not um, 
dramatic, uh, very common. So for LERC2, for example, it could be 2 to 5% of all Parkinson's patients. Um, but what this approach is starting to do now is to pull us more in the direction that a field like oncology or cancer has gone to, where you really could start to more subset the population of the disease based on some genetic factors or other biological factors, and then develop therapies that could very specifically target that uh, biology that's impacting that subset of the patient population. And that's what's happening now in GBA and LERC2, where these particular approaches in the first phase of their evaluation are really targeting individuals with Parkinson's disease, but individuals with Parkinson's disease who happen to have the mutations in these particular genes. So this is a very new direction, a more sort of you may have heard of the concept of personalized medicine, where you target the therapy specifically to the right patient at the right stage of their disease. And in this case, genetics is one of those driving factors for how to um, target the individuals who may be benefiting from these therapies. Um, one point just to raise is that you may think and say, well, if I don't have the LERC2 mutation or I don't have the GBA mutation, should I particularly care about these therapies? And, you know, I think one of the things that we've learned um, in, in other diseases and we're learning in Parkinson's is that these genetic mutations really serve as a foothold um, for advancing therapies in the disease. And what we are uncovering is that there is evidence that uh, other broader aspects of the population of the disease could, in fact, benefit from these therapies. Um, but when we, when we do the studies this way, what we, in terms of selecting the individuals with the mutations, it gives us the greatest chance of success in really understanding the potential benefit of this type of therapy. So it sounds like, Todd, this can be a kind of double win in the sense that it could provide, as you suggest, a personalized approach to deal with a particular kind of Parkinson's, just like in breast cancer. There might be a particular uh, approach that works with some kinds of, of breast cancer and, and, and not another. On the other hand, it sounds like you're also saying that there are enough similarities that we can learn from this and some of what we might learn that could fix a particular mutation might tell us something about what's going on more broadly in the disease and be applicable uh, to the rest of the population. Is that right? So it, it kind of hits at both. Yeah, that, that's correct. And I, I think one of the other things we've learned um, uh, where I, I am very optimistic and enthusiastic about this much more rigorous and personalized approach is that it's a very high bar to hope that an individual therapy could have the ability to slow uh, the progression of Parkinson's disease across the entire population of Parkinson's, given that we understand the variability in the disease. So by having this diversity of approaches, really uh, with a solid foundation in the, in the science, it gives us a great opportunity to move these all in parallel and really start to tease out and identify the patient populations that have the greatest chances of benefiting from each of these individual therapeutic approaches. Great. And, and then, Andrew Sideroff, let's go back to you on the next three that we're approaching, which are very different approaches. They're all drugs that have been approved for different conditions. Is radipine for uh, blood pressure, inosine is something that boosts urate levels, nilotinib is a cancer drug. They all have different other purposes, but we think they may play a role in, in, in Parkinson's as well. 
it's what Todd is suggesting about the ones we were just talking about true here as well, that we might learn that one makes sense as ratapine works for one set of people with Parkinson's in a scene another. Is that, is that sort of also applicable to, to this idea? Uh, so I think to a certain extent it is, uh, it, but it's not the primary purpose of these trials. They really are looking at uh, a cross-section of Parkinson patients, and they're comparing whether people who get treated have less progression over time than people who don't. And then I think as a secondary analysis of these trials, the investigators will certainly look at whether there are certain subtypes of patients that do uh, better than others. Um, I guess, so I think that this is, you know, the, the examples of GBA and LARC2 are really great examples of the way that personalized medicine is coming to Parkinson's disease. And these are more about therapies that are potentially applicable for everyone. Um, the, the, I guess the inosine trial is really targeted people who have a specifically low level of urate, and the idea is to raise the level of urate. So it's, it's not including people that have normal urate. So this is, this is a, a bit of a tailored approach. But the other two are, you know, more traditional in their approach where they're looking at people with early, recently diagnosed, well, is ratapine at least, early, recently diagnosed Parkinson's seeing if the progression is slowed. And a lot of it's more of a cross-section of Parkinson patients um, looking at whether both motor and cognitive features actually of Parkinson's are slowed by the treatment. And, and Andrew, these are uh, particularly isratapine and inosine are, are quite far along. So we'll know, we'll learn something fairly soon about whether or not those particular approaches are um, efficacious. Um, can you briefly describe, uh, perhaps with, with uh, nilotinib, which is less far along, because that got a lot of attention uh, a year or so ago. It's a cancer drug, and that in and of itself is sort of hard to get your head around. How could a cancer role, drug play a role in Parkinson's? Can you just fill us in a little bit more about, about where we are with that? Sure. So nilotinib, like you said, is a, a, a drug that's approved and on the market for cancer. Uh, and some investigators uh, at Georgetown University um, discovered last year, or they reported last year, that they saw um, uh, improvements in the clinical symptoms of people with Parkinson's in their clinic uh, when they were treated with nilotinib. And these were sort of in parallel to uh, studies that were going on in their laboratory showing improvements in features that are lab markers of uh, of Parkinson's in the laboratory animals. And this obviously led to a lot of excitement about uh, nilotinib and a novel mechanism of action for treating Parkinson's. And I think that the, the thing that's exciting now is that uh, Georgetown is going back and doing their own study to try to confirm their results. And then the Michael J. Fox Foundation, uh, in collaboration with the Parkinson's study group, is in doing an independent uh, study to try to confirm whether nilotinib uh, is good for people with Parkinson's disease. And I think that the, you know, Georgetown has been a pioneer in this area, and then in, in uh, conjunction with that, we'd have uh, an independent group testing whether, the, whether this drug is effective, and that would be potentially a more impartial way of judging whether the nilotinib is good for people with Parkinson's disease. Uh, but one and, quick and thing about sure. this is that there's safety data, I mean, that already exists for these drugs. So the pathway to getting them to yeah. patients is faster. 
Right. That's a big plus of these so-called, uh, you know, yeah. these, these I mean, drugs. Rataphine and inosine are, have good safety profiles, and Nilotinib obviously has more safety issues because it's a chemotherapeutic drug, but it's not um, as toxic as you might think of, uh, you know, when you really think of It's not like the way you'd normally think of cancer treatment and, and toxicity there. And let me ask just one more question about this to you, Tanshira, and then we'll move on to our next slide and, and involve um, Doug Dumond in our, our conversation about new symptomatic approaches. Um, but, but Todd, one of the things that can happen when a drug is already on the market, like uh, the blood pressure drug is ratapine, or the, is, is there can be eagerness in the patient community to say, well, if that works, you know, it's already been approved for something else, why don't I just start taking it now? Um, and, and yet there are concerns about that, and that's part of why we need to go, even though that temptation is understandable, describe for us why it's important to still go through this sort of more rigorous scientific process. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a highest level. Um, while Andrew mentioned we have a great uh, knowledge of these drugs, of sort of the safety issues, because they've been in the, in the, used in, in people, many of them, many of the drugs in many, many people. We all also know that whenever we see a commercial for a drug, the last half of the commercial lists all the, the side effects of every medication. So no drug kind of comes without any potential safety liabilities. And in many cases, the drugs may never have been given to Parkinson's patients. So there's other drugs that people are taking with Parkinson's. There's other um, aspects of the Parkinson's disease that we have to really assess um, the safety aspects of these um, these drugs, even though they're available. So we always want to make sure we have enough evidence that the benefit of taking a drug outweighs any of the potential side effects. And, and there could be unexpected interactions with some of the Parkinson's uh, medications that people are taking. I think this uh, scientific and, and database, data-driven approach is always the best mechanism. Now, it could be that for some individuals, there's a reason they should be taking some of these other medications because of other illnesses that they have, and I think it's worth discussing, obviously, with both your, your uh, Parkinson's doctor and other doctors whether um, it makes sense to, to use some of these medicines. Okay. Um, with that, let's, let's um, push on and, and talk about some more specific therapies that have to do with specific symptoms in Parkinson's. But again, if you have questions about any of these approaches that we've been discussing, um, do send in your questions and, and we'll circle back uh, uh, to that. But let's get up, let's talk now about some new uh, uh, treatments that have been approved or will soon be uh, uh, approved, we think, to tackle specific symptoms. And let me, let me bring Doug DeMond into our conversation again. Doug was diagnosed with Parkinson's um, uh, four uh, years ago and has undergone a deep brain uh, stimulation as a way of, of contending with some of the symptoms that he was facing. So we're going to do this a bit out of order, Doug, and, and talk about this third bullet point that we see on the screen uh, now, which are some new developments in, in deep brain stimulation that have, are, are going into effect now. But before we describe those, um, just tell us something about your own experience with DBS, the symptoms that you were struggling with before you had that procedure, and then what happened from your point of view after you had a deep brain stimulation, the deep brain stimulation procedure. Sure. Um, well, as I was diagnosed in October 2013, and for a period of time, the medications uh, seemed to work very effectively. Uh, I was initially on Mirapex and Azelect, 
and then went on the Cinemet regimen. Um, but beginning in 2017, I began to experience severe off episodes. So when I was on, I feel like I could um, practically run a marathon or bike 10 miles. But then I would be running errands in a grocery store and all of a sudden freeze. And um, so it was a very discomforting feeling and made it hard to operate day to day. Um, my symptoms were dis stiffness, uh, not so much tremors, um, sleep disorder, and fatigue. Um, and it, it exasperated itself to, in the last year that I felt like I wanted to do something um, fairly drastic or momentous. Um, since I've had the, the DBS surgery, I just actually finished it um, six weeks ago, um, and I've had one programming or two programming sessions since, and it was divided into three surgeries. Um, and uh, since then, my symptoms have almost gone away. Uh, I have no more stiffness, no more dyskinesia, no more sleep problems, uh, no more motor fluctuations, no more downtime. Um, it, it really, for me, has been a small miracle or a big miracle. <laughs> it's been life-changing. And um, one of the things about the technology that I think has made a difference is the ability for the practitioner uh, with the new technology to target specific areas of the brain. Um, the uh, technology is often referred to as uh, multi-segment direct directional leads in the brain stimulation. And, uh, and it, the other unique thing about it is it has a smartphone, and I'm not sure I'm using the right term, but it's we're all familiar with Apple products. Uh, um, it could be another product, uh, but it has a smartphone application. So when you go in for uh, programming, it's done on a iPad, and all the various touch points, there's like 4,000 different settings that they can do under this new uh, multi-stem uh, approach, or multi-directional lead approach. And um, it's done initially on an iPad, and then you're given an iTouch, which looks like an iPhone, to take with you. And it's programmed, the iPhone is programmed in a way that allows you to work within ranges so you don't turn yourself into young Frankenstein, um, uh, which there's a risk of if you, if you have too much... Uh, electrical stimulation, it can generate significant dyskinesia and other problems. Uh, so they have you work within a range, and uh, during the first period of time, you go back um, every two weeks, and then you graduate to every quarter, and then you graduate to once or twice a year. Um, but to give an example of the preciseness of where they're able to target, I was in the office, and... Um, I developed some pretty severe dyskinesia in the left leg, and the doctor uh, or the nurse practitioner, uh, you know, went to touch point 4B and adjusted it to 2.2, and all of a sudden the dyskinesia went away, and it was it was just amazing from that standpoint. And so a lot of the 
a lot of the symptoms that are listed, ongoing treatment, motor symptoms, motor fluctuations on and off, um, dyskinesia, I'm not sure about dementia, but constipation, depression, anxiety, and sleep disorders ha have been successfully addressed with uh, this procedure. And I, I would just add, it's a little bit like a combination of physics and calculus when they're going through this process. It's it's simply amazing in terms of their ability to program um, the uh, stimulation with the multi-directional leads. So, and Dave, is that helpful? Yeah, thank you, Doug. No, it's very helpful, Doug. Thank you, and and it's obviously great to to hear how well this approach is is, is working for you. And and Andrew Sidorov, if you could comment further on this being sounds like perhaps another example of the way in which Parkinson's treatments are being more personalized, more tailored to particular individuals, whether that's for specific symptoms or whether or not someone has, um, a, you know, is more troubled by one symptom than another. This, this, it sounds like from Doug's description that with deep brain stimulation in particular, which has been effective for a long time, we're now refining it further so that, that it can be more um, personalized. Is, is that what you're seeing in, in the field uh, from, from your point of view? I think that uh, I absolutely agree with you. I think that this is a great example of making the therapy more tailored to individual patients. You know, the old, first we had pallidotomy, which was just a hole in the brain and everybody got the same thing. And it was one, really a, literally a one-size-fits-all solution. And then there were the DBS, which had four, the traditional DBS, which had four contacts uh, and it was programmable and was somewhat flexible, certainly more flexible than the old surgery, the old lesioning surgeries were. And now we're seeing a real explosion, I think, in terms of the ability to program very flexibly the DBS machines. And I think that uh, it allows really uh, just to, to shape the, the uh, DBS contacts in a way which is very adapted to individual patients. And I think that uh, we're only going to see more of it. One of the things I'm excited about, too, is the, um, the smartphone and the iPad interfaces, because I think that uh, it'll make it much easier for doctors to, to visualize the therapy and also potentially for patients to have a little more control over their own treatment in a way which is a little more intuitive for them. So I think these are all nice advances. And, and Andrew Sidorov, well, well, obviously DBS is not necessarily for everyone, and we should stress that, that it, it makes sense for some and, and perhaps not for others. One thing that's also changing, and Doug, you're an example of this, is it's being now sometimes offered, Dr. Sidorov, to people much earlier on in the disease course. It used to be, as I understand it, at least something that was more done, you know, well into your one's Parkinson's experience. Now it seems like it's being brought out, uh, its availability is, is being offered up sooner. Is, is that, A, is that right? And, and B, why, why is that, that we're now thinking, well, let's get to this sooner rather than later? Uh, so I agree with you. I, I can really speak mostly to my own practice and a little bit uh, to the broader practice, I suppose. I, I definitely find that I offer DBS to especially younger patients like Doug earlier on. I feel like it's something that certain types of Parkinson patients are going to want to access at some point during their course of their, of their disease and that a lot of the risk is really upfront risk associated with the surgery and the benefits 
you know, begin when you after you've had this the procedure, and then they accrue over time. So, for the for the right patient, and you obviously have to talk to your own doctor about whether this was something that applied to you or not. I think that sometimes earlier does make sense, and I think there's also been some reports in the literature suggesting that um, earlier DBS uh, does offer clinical benefits over uh, medical therapy uh, alone. I, I also think that, you know, because we've had experience, there's obviously new uh, technologies that are being brought to bear on DBS. I was just talking about that, but the concept has been around for well over a decade now, coming up on two, I think, and um, so I think that doctors are just getting more comfortable with it and so that they feel more comfortable using it earlier in the course of disease in some patients, not all. But a young patient who's having medicine side effects is a great candidate for earlier rather than later DBS. And we want to, we've got a lot on this slide and we need to cover some other ground, but, but I do, we are getting a couple of other questions about DBS that are coming in. So let's deal with those and then we'll, we'll move on to some other, uh, symptomatic approaches. But Doug, one individual writes in wanting to know whether or not, um, you're continuing to take medication, even though you've had uh, the deep brain stimulation procedure, it's often a benefit that you can at least reduce the number of drugs that you're taking. What's that experience been like for you? Um, yeah, I, I'm still still continuing, but it, I've reduced it by uh, almost two-thirds the amount of medication that I'm taking. I'm still taking Azelect, and I'm taking um, uh, carbolivodopa. I was getting to the point where I was taking three three carbolivodopa three or four times a day or four or five times a day, and now I'm just taking one three times a day. Um, it, my understanding is that you still need to take it because you're not generating the natural enough of the natural dopamine, but the DBS smooths out the peaks and valleys, and I wake up in the morning and I feel, I feel fine. I, I used to be in bed and have to... To, you know, my wife would bring me up my medication and took it if we had company, and I'd take 20 minutes until I felt good, and uh, now I feel feel uh, feel good. But you do have to continue to take the medication, uh, but it, it, if it's successful at a vastly reduced rate, which also results in less side effects longer term, um, such as the dyskinesia. Okay. Thank you, Doug. Um, we'll, we'll come back if we, can, if we have time and, and address some other issues about, about uh, DBS, but we do have lots on our screen here, so we want to make sure we touch on those. Um, touch here, we're, we're getting a number of questions about um, stem cells, and we see as, as on our slide here under trials where there are uh, ongoing uh, treatments um, and, and testing of, of stem cell therapies. Stem cell has had a kind of a roller coaster ride over time with, with its possibilities for Parkinson's, times when we're optimistic, times when we're less so. Um, give us a, a kind of snapshot of, of where we are now and, and what you think may still be promising about that approach. Yeah, so I think stem cells is also a pretty broad category, so I just want to break it down a little bit. Yeah. Um, we talk about trials and approaches as different types that are being looked at. I think the original, uh, one of the original real um, pushes for stem cells um, had to do with the concept of looking at whether stem cells could be made into dopamine-producing brain cells 
and then those cells could be transplanted back into the brain of someone with Parkinson's, since we know that at least many of the motor symptoms of Parkinson's are due to the loss of those dopamine-producing cells. Um, that uh, avenue of research has been ongoing for many years, and as you mentioned, has had sort of peaks and valleys. At this point, we are uh, fortunate in that I believe this area is getting a, more of an upswing um, and having a lot of momentum. Um, there, the concept is that you could take um, either human embryonic stem cells and make those into dopamine-producing brain cells, or another technology that has been developed more recently, which is called induced pluripotent stem cells. This is where you could take a blood sample or skin sample from an adult, convert that back into a stem cell, and then use those cells to make dopamine-producing cells. Um, both of those approaches um, were very uh, ha have been successful over the years to make large numbers of dopamine-producing cells in the laboratory, but upon transplant of putting those in the brains of animal models of the disease, um, we had some issues in sort of the survival and dopamine production of those cells during the transplant. Those challenges have recently been overcome, and now there are a few groups that are now gearing up to do the first uh, clinical trials now uh, of these either embryonic stem cell-derived dopamine cells or the um, IPS-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cells. Um, it does involve brain surgery in terms of implanting the cells back into the brain, but the hope of these studies would be that then with that implant, the brain would start producing greater amounts of dopamine um, under natural, you know, physiological conditions. So that area has, while it kind of had some challenges, is now kind of on an upswing, and I'd anticipate these trials happening probably within the next uh, next year because I know they're being planned. Um, other things you may have heard about in terms of stem cells um, are where people, um, some researchers are just injecting more um, let not not differentiated, meaning that the cells have not been converted into dopamine-producing cells, so injecting stem cells um, either peripherally or directly into the brain. Um, those, I believe, have less sort of scientific basis. Um, and there was one reported out this year did that, that uh, was done overseas that did not have a positive outcome in terms of improving uh, the symptoms of Parkinson's. There is another interesting approach that's in an early stage study, which is um, uh, using um, healthy blood in a, in a more of a kind of transfusion type approach. Um, and there's some evidence from animals that if you put young blood into an older animal, um, the animal can kind of uh, appear younger, have some of the features of being younger. Um, and an approach like this is actually being tested in a trial at Stanford with more of a transfusion type of approach that uh, in an unknown biology does seem, at least in animal models, to be of quite interest. So an early stage trial happening there. So it's a sort of a stem cell-like type of approach. As someone who lives and is driving down, actually, to the Stanford uh, campus uh, later today, and, and being the age that I am, that sounds incredibly promising. So maybe I'll just stop by and uh, see what's possible. <laughs> I'll give you some of mine, anyway. Dave, as a youngster. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, let's touch on a couple of other things on, on this slide. And, and um, come back to, you know, Doug was talking about how problematic 
off being off is, when your medications aren't working before um, Doug had the DBS procedure. Um, and, and trying to solve the, that problem has been something that researchers have focused on for some time. And we see Andrew Sitter up on the, on the slide here that, and this has been kind of, we've been tantalizingly close, I think, to a couple of these approaches being approved uh, for some time. One is the idea of inhaled levodopa, sort of like an asthma inhaler, the other being something that you could slip under your tongue, a little sublingual uh, a strip that would give you something called apomorphine that used to be just injectable. Um, are, are, do these seem promising to you uh, and uh, as approaches, because we hope that they'll be available soon, as really helping us solve that perennially difficult problem to solve of, of someone being off rather than on? Yeah, so a uh, good question. I, I think that um, these, both of these approaches have sort of been in the works for a while, and um, especially the inhaled levodopa, I think that people had high hopes for it, and we haven't seen it yet, but we may still. Uh, so I think that, you know, let's keep our eyes on that. We have, in the last couple of years, I think very fortuitously seen some new delivery systems for levodopa, the uh, the uh, the, the extended release levodopa by Tari, which really works quite nicely, and then the levodopa in jejunal infusion, duopa. So these are examples of approved uh, alternate approaches to delivering levodopa. And then in terms of apomorphine, I think that there is the apomorphine uh, injection and there are apomorphine pumps that are used in Europe, and I think we'll probably see an apomorphine pump in the United States fairly soon, actually. Um, and then just... Um, to cover some of the other medications that are on the, this slide, cefinimide uh, and the extended release amantadine, if that would be okay. I think these are just examples of how the pipeline does move forward continue, you know, all the time, and these are new drugs that are available this year for uh, patients with Parkinson's disease in the case of cefinimide, uh, it's for off episodes, and in the case of amantadine, it's for levodopa-induced dyskinesias, uh, and also potentially may have an um, effect on uh, off time. And so this is just examples of drugs that are approved that are, you know, continuing to give patients uh, more options as we continue to wait for the disease-bonifying therapies we talked about earlier. And let's, let's uh, explore one other area here. And, and Doug, let me ask you this question. I think anyone who lives with Parkinson's disease or is a family member with someone with Parkinson's disease knows in time that, that while we focus initially on the, the motor symptoms and problems like stiffness and tremor and, and, and rigidity, sometimes what can be just as problematic or even more are things that have, don't, aren't motor symptoms, whether that's worries about whether or not you're losing some of your cognitive abilities or concerns or feeling depression or anxiety or the sleep disorders you mentioned, um, um, Doug. Can you just, from a patient point of view, um, Tell us a little bit about your experience, if, if, if that's relevant for you, and your worries about that. And then I'd like to share for you to bring us up to date on what's going on to, to approach some of those more, uh, I think, difficult um, sometimes symptoms um, to live with when you have Parkinson's. Have, have those been issues for you at all, Doug, those concerns, those sort of more emotional, um, cognitive kind of things? Yeah, yeah, they have. Um, I mean, clearly you have... Um, uh, depression or anxiety related to what's unknown in terms of the progression of the disease and the um, the burden that that's going to put on your caretaker and the stress on the family. 
um, and uh, and also the financial aspects. If somebody who develops Parkinson's, many people who develop Parkinson's um, before they're diagnosed work work their way through it and continue to work until they can't keep up anymore. And then they're diagnosed, and sometimes they're diagnosed after their disability uh, has been, uh, is, they're eligible for disability. So that's always a concern is putting uh, the diagnosis and getting the benefits that people deserve because a, a good amount of anxiety is, you know, putting food on the table and still being able to educate your kids, particularly when you're early diagnosis. Uh, so that that played a played played a big role in both the depression, anxiety, and and sleep disorder. You know the worry that you have for your for your loved right. ones. Uh, in my case, you know kids that still needed to be educated for college and and uh, a caregiver uh, from right. that standpoint. Doug, thank you. And 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 Todd, um, I want to ask you to if there are sort of things that are maybe promising dealing in terms of, of depression or, or uh, some of the those issues. This also brings up something that, that you, I know you can comment on, which is a, um, part of what the foundation is focusing right now is also just gathering more experience and more information, rather, about the lived experience of Parkinson's through something called Fox Insight. Because part of what we're learning is what Doug just described, that we want to do a better job, I think, of understanding the reality of living with Parkinson's and then matching up our research efforts to try to provide assistance in those areas. Can you talk about that, please, a little bit and then maybe give us a quick update um, on, on where we are in finding some solutions. Yeah, so I, I think this is a really important conversation. I really appreciate Doug for sharing um, that experience because, um, these aspects of Parkinson's historically have not been greatly appreciated both by the medical community and the research community. While people with Parkinson's have known about them and been aware about them this whole time. So I think one of the goals we have in a project like Fox Insight is to really try to get access to this expert information that people with Parkinson's have on the challenges, uh, the limitations of current medications, some of the unanticipated side effects of current treatments, what are the aspects of the disease that are having the most significant impact on their, their lives, their well-being, so that we can make sure that the research is targeting and measuring those aspects. So if we, we talked a lot so far in this webinar about looking at the effectiveness of new medications, well, you want to really be able to judge the effectiveness of those new, new medications against what the unmet needs and um, aspects of the disease that are most significantly impacting someone with the disease are. Um, so I think this, this communication and interaction between the research community, the medical community, um, and people with Parkinson's and their families is critical. Fox Insight is a um, web-based platform to really enable that communication to happen for people with the disease to really um, provide that information in real time that could be used by the research community. Um, in terms of some areas of, of um, advances, there, there is research going on in, in these areas that we've just talked about um, and, and focused a lot on trying to develop treatments that are not predominantly targeting the dopamine system as we know that many of the symptoms 
that are currently going untreated are untreated because they're not responding to the various dopamine-based treatments. Um, and there were, we mentioned on the slide here, some new uh, drug approvals um, that are targeting other, you know, other mechanisms in the brain um, to look at some of the motor symptoms. Um, not in 2017, but in 2016, there was an approval of a, of a, a drug that targeted some of the um, hallucinations and um, other uh, not, um, psychological symptoms that some people with Parkinson's can have, so that's now available. Um, and this is really, as we list here, an area of pretty active research um, in terms of trying to develop new treatments. Um, and not all the treatments for these symptoms have to be pharmacological, um, particularly with sleep and depression, um, anxiety. There are exercise-based therapies and physical therapy and activities, and maybe Andrew could talk a little bit about that, that can have benefit. We, we have a study we're funding, which is to do telephone-based psychotherapy for depression. So it doesn't only have to be a pharmacological treatment or, or a drug pill to treat some of these symptoms, uh, but it's an area of research. We need certainly to learn a lot more about what the underlying biology is um, that impacts some of these symptoms. And just to wrap up my comments here, it's one of the reasons why I'm excited about the uh, array of treatments we talked about targeting the underlying biology, such as alpha-synuclein or LERC2, because we do believe that that biology is, is broad in terms of its impact on these symptoms, that um, alpha-synuclein uh, pathology is probably not only limited to the motor symptoms and in this broad array of symptoms. Mm -hmm. So if we have a treatment that really targets that underlying causal factors of the disease, it could have a broader impact not only on motor symptoms, but some of these non-motor and currently untreated symptoms perhaps even halt the development of, of some of those problems before they, they even begin. Um, I'm going to put our last slide up, which is about our kind of broader understanding of, of, of Parkinson's and allow people a moment to kind of look at these and we'll, we'll get some last comments on them. But because time is short, I also want to make sure we get to a, a couple of, of uh, questions that people have raised. And Todd just mentioned exercise and a few people have uh, uh, sent in questions about exercise. So, Andrew Sidorov, maybe you can comment on that a little bit. There seems to be just this growing body of evidence of how important exercise is in terms of, of not only managing symptoms, but perhaps also even slowing how quickly the disease advances. I read something yesterday that sort of seemed to make the point that exercise, particularly vigorous exercise, um, uh, is important. Give us a quick snapshot of, of what we're knowing, what we've learned so far about its value. So I, I recommend exercise for all of my patients. You know, it's, a lot of pe people are older and have other problems like arthritis, and it's hard for them to exercise. So I think it's important to do whatever you can. Um, there are definitely studies that show that vigorous exercise may have particular benefits a few times a week and may even have improvements uh, in some physiologic measures of brain function and not just, you know, your stamina and other things you associate with exercise, but this is still, I think, an open question, and it's not confirmed that vigorous exercise specifically is good for the Parkinson brain. Mm. I think the, the big message here is that any exercise is better than no exercise at all, and I always tell people that they should at least get out and have a good walk uh, three times a week for half hour. You know, try to get up a little bit of a sweat if you can. Um, there are studies that show that certain kinds of exercise, like Tai Chi, uh, may be good, probably just because it really tackles the problems that people have 
with stiffness, loss of effects, flexibility, and balance problems that are so typical of Parkinson's. And then the last point I would make about this is that we have a physical therapist that we work closely with in our practice. And I think even if people don't think that they need physical therapy per se, I think going to have a visit with a, either a physical therapist or a personal trainer and really having a program that's tailored to you and your physical abilities and uh, having somebody who's keeping an eye on you, making you stick with it, uh, is a really good way to uh, ingrain good physical habits. I'm sure um, as we approach the end of our hour, I'm going to ask you a, a, to do something which is difficult, but I know you can, um, which is to, to summarize, if you can, this, this slide that we have up now about um, our, our sort of growing understanding of, of Parkinson's and, and perhaps the way sort of these things are beginning to fit together, that we're learning more about genetic risk or learning about perhaps the linkage between certain kinds of Parkinson's and how those particular kinds of Parkinson's might progress over, over time, that there are these different lanes in a, in a sense of, of Parkinson's. We're learning more about how to identify what's going on in the, in the brain with more sophisticated scanning. Give us kind of a, 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 your sense of, of what that picture looks like. And, is it, and are we, I guess, really making significant strides and beginning to fill in that picture so there aren't quite so many dark corners? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back, um, and I'll try to be quick, goes back to sort of the discussion we had in, in kind of talking about the new generation of therapies that are being tested that are really based on an increased knowledge of the disease. And a lot of this work really starts with very rigorous systematic evaluation of and study of people with Parkinson's disease. Um, and there's a large initiative the foundation has been leading over a number of years called the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, which has really been feeding the field, fueling the field with very significant data around clinical aspects of Parkinson's, genetic, biological, looking at brain scans because we have to get some kind of window into what's happening in the brain of people with Parkinson's. And out of that kind of research comes new direction for therapies, developing therapies against novel biology that could be impacting the disease. But one thing we haven't talked a lot about, which is equally important, is trying to come up with better ways to do these trials more quickly. Um, and one of the reasons why it's exciting to do uh, trials in and select individuals in those trials who have the greatest chance of, of having benefit is you could probably do the trial with less individuals because you'll have less variability. Um, so smaller trials with more robust outcomes so we can really test a lot of these treatments earlier and more quickly and not have to continue to talk about the longer time frames that we currently face like uh, Andrew was mentioning for some of the synuclein therapies. So all of that goal of new therapies, new directions, as well as new and better ways to actually test these come out of the need to have a greater understanding of what's really happening in the, in the disease and how can we measure it in a better way. It's such an interesting point because you think of a phrase like improvements in trial design and it doesn't sound that interesting or that significant, but if you think about it in the way you just framed it, if we're able to do our trials in a smarter way, in a more focused way, testing out people who have a particular kind of Parkinson's and a drug that may work for them, we can speed up this process and, and, and advance 
the ball forward that much quicker. Um, Andrew Sidoroff, a last word for you, from you, and then I'll and then I'll give the last word of, of of in our webinar to you, Doug. But but Andrew, as you look at this big picture, sum up for us, if you would please, where you think we are at the end of 2017, where you hope we may be a year from now when we have this conversation once again. Well, I think that I guess I would finish up where we started. We saw well, how many was it? Twelve different uh, disease modifying treatments in clinical trials right now, and I think that. That's really remarkable. I think when you couple that with a really deeper understanding about pathomechanisms uh, for Parkinson's disease, ranging from uh, progression of synuclein aggregation to genetic deficits, that we've really never been in a better position to identifying disease-modifying treatments. Now, I think it's going to take longer than we wish it did, but I think that uh, I've never been more optimistic about disease modification than I am now. Great, thank you. And, and Doug, a last word um, from you from the patient perspective about sort of your hopes about where this can go and perhaps also the importance of, uh, of, of people like you and, and, and like me of being engaged in this process so that we make sure that the patients are participating in research and, and also lending our, our making sure scientists like Andrew and Todd know what the lived experience is. Absolutely, Dave. Um... I guess the, the key point I would make is that there's an individualized approach to every, or there should be an individually individualized approach to every Parkinson's patient. And uh, whether that's uh, uh, physical therapy, whether that's uh, medicine, or in my case, the DBS, um, one of the things that they put me through was extensive psychoneurological testing. And... Uh, and that included on-off testing, on medication, off medication. And because of that and what they learned from that, they, they learned that uh, it would make a difference. And as I said, DBS or somebody said isn't for everyone. Um, I think don't assume that it's the answer for you unless you go through the consultation and testing. I went, I went to uh, doctors at four different centers uh, major centers in New York and Boston before I made the decision uh, to go forward. So I'm glad I could contribute as a patient, and I look forward to uh, continuing to do so uh, based on my experience. Doug, thank you. That's a great last thought, I think, that we all have a responsibility to participate um, in, in our, our own uh, treatment course because um, it, it, it not only, of course, matters to us most, but, but we're really, as Michael J. Fox likes to say, the solution is also in us. We can't get there unless we participate. Thanks all very much. Thanks to Doug DeMond, to Andrew Sidoroff, and, and uh, to Todd Scherer for their participation in our uh, webinar uh, today. We have up on the screen how you can watch uh, previous uh, webinars. Um, and we'll also be sending um, a link uh, to this webinar so that if you want to listen to it again or if you want to share it with others, you'll be able to do so. Um, that wraps up our third Thursday webinar series for 2017. We will rejoin you in just a month in January of 2018, and we look forward to another year of these discussions uh, about the latest in Parkinson's disease research. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dave Iverson. Thank you, David.